a great psalm, a great psalm to end the series on, a psalm about God's all-encompassing care for us. Let me read Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in, behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. It's one of the great ironies of life in the modern world that we are technologically more interconnected to one another than ever before, and yet perhaps in the modern world we are more disconnected from one another than ever before. We tweet and we post and we text and we email and we put comments on news feeds underneath blog posts and we Snapchat. And and so we're all interconnected and communicating. The whole world has been shrunk through technology as people connect with one another. And yet, there's a sense of profound anonymity in that modern digital communication as as our our, uh, ourselves are, are sort of filtered through the digital media, and we present the parts of us that we want to present um, in this new brave new world. Uh, Relational terms like friendship have been radically redefined on Facebook. <laughs> you know, what does it mean to be a friend? It's something now much more hollow and, and ephemeral. Or what does it mean to be in community? You know, we have this phrase, online communities. But like, what does that mean to be in an online community? 
It means that you put words on a screen and other people read those words. And in many cases, you, don't, if you could walk down the street from someone with whom you are in community and you even know that that was them, you know, because their avatar is, you know, Donald Duck or whatever on the screen. And so part of living in, in this modern world is this incredible interconnectedness, and yet the modern world can be a very lonely place. Does anybody really know anybody anymore? Well, into this modern wasteland comes Psalm 139 crashing in like an EM pulse just shutting down all of that. And there in the middle of Psalm 139 is a God who knows us. A God who is present with us. A God who who is all-encompassing around us. A God from whom we cannot escape even behind our computer screens. He's an amazing God. Psalm 139 is a theological reflection on the nature of God, but it's not an abstract reflection. It's not an academic reflection. This isn't just kind of dry theology. This is very personal theology, a very personal reflection It's about a God who is very close, who is all-encompassing. Psalm 139 is 24 verses, if you look at it, uh, and it breaks up very neatly into four sections of six verses each. The first three sections uh, that take us all the way through verse 18, those first three sections are reflections about different aspects of God's character and, and how that relates to us individually. And then the last section, verses 19 to 24, is kind of like the psalmist's reaction to all that. So we're going to look at three reflections on God and His all-encompassing love and closeness to us, followed by the last one, which is a reflection back on that. So let's look at the first one. And here we see in this first section that God has an all-encompassing knowledge of us. Verse 1, O Lord, You have searched me and You know me. The word know is the key word to the first six verses. Look at verse 2. You know when I sit. You perceive my thoughts. Verse 3, you discern my going out. Verse 4, you know it completely. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. God just, He knows us completely. He knows everything about us. The knowledge of God is so amazing. And it's not just knowledge. Look again, verse 1. He says, oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. God has searched us out. You know, he'd gone deep and in all the the nooks and crannies. He knows everything. You know, some of us know where each other lives. You could drive by each other's house and be like, oh yeah, that's where so-and-so lives. Maybe you've driven by my house. Oh, I think that's the pastor's house. Or, you know, I know where they live. Some of us have been into each other's houses. I mean, not a lot. This is New England and let's let's not get crazy here, but you know, a few of us have been into each other's houses, and and we've seen each other's houses, but I bet nobody here has ever searched one another's houses, like gone through the drawers and gone up in the attic and like opened stuff and, you know, gone in the basement and looked in all the cupboards, but God doesn't just know us. He has searched us. I mean, he knows everything. All the details. Look how much he knows about us. Verse 2. You know when I sit and when I rise. 
Verse 3, you discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. So in verses 2 and 3, uh, the psalmist, uh, who, who this, we're, we're told here is David, David uh, uses a Hebrew figure of speech called a merism, M-E-R-I-S-M. And, and a merism is expressing totality by mentioning opposites. So, for instance, first verse of the Bible has a merism. In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. In other words, everything. So it's a way of saying everything except poetically using two opposites. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So here you have some merisms. Verse 2, you know, when I sit and when I rise, opposites. Verse 3, you discern my going out when I go out for the day and my lying down. In other words, you know everything about me. You, you perceive it all and you know it all. God knows everything we do. He knows everything we did yesterday. He knows everything we'll do tomorrow. He knows our whole lives, all of it, front to back. None of it escapes God's notice. God is aware of everything. It's an incredible knowledge. But notice this. It's not just everything we do. It's everything we think. Verse 3, or verse 2. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Verse 4. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. I mean, you know, like, I know people can, can know and they can watch me. You know, the NSA could fly drones and satellites and they could track my movements. But at least my thoughts are my own, right? But when it comes to God, he even sees our thoughts. The good thoughts, the bad thoughts, the embarrassing thoughts, the anxious thoughts, he sees my schemes, my dreams. He, you know, you wake up in the morning. I never, I'm one of those people I never remember my dreams. People come to me like, I've got to tell you my dream last night. I'm like, don't. That's just annoying. But uh, <laughs> they're like, what did you dream? I'm like, I don't know, you know. But God knows my dreams. He knows everything that's gone on in my head. That's, that's a little unnerving, isn't it? God knows your thoughts. There's nothing that's hidden from him. He, he probably knows our thoughts. He knows our thoughts better than we do. He remembers it all. He sees it all. It reminds me of Jesus when he was on earth, and he, it says the Scripture tells us he knew their thoughts. You remember when the, that story when they, they let the guy down through the roof, and Jesus says to the guy, your sins are forgiven, and the Pharisees are thinking. They're like, huh, how could he forgive sins? No one can forgive sins but God. And it says he knew their thoughts. You know, it's, it's one of the many, many, many reasons we believe that the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus was God in human flesh because only God knows thoughts. Jesus knew their thoughts. And so God knows even in my thoughts. He, he, he knows it all. How does God's knowledge strike you? How does it make you feel? Is it a comforting thought or is it kind of a scary thought? Maybe it's a little both, Right? It's comforting. David seems to be comforted. If you look at verse 5, he says, You hem me in behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. God's knowledge like, surrounds him. He, it's like it's, he's wrapped up in the blanket of God's knowledge of him. God, God knows everything about him, and, and there's a certain comfort in that. You know, here we are in this big room with all of these people who are all squeezing in nicely to make room for others, and uh, in this whole big space of people, and yet you can be so alone in a crowd. 
You could sit in a crowd and be smiling and singing the songs, but inside you can be falling apart. Inside you can be in turmoil. Inside you can barely be able to stay in your seat, and you're like, I just want to get out of here. You can be in all kinds, and, and no, it's like no one knows it, but God knows it. God knows everything you're feeling. He knows everything you're going through. God sees it. He knows your thoughts. It's so comforting to know that even when no one else knows us, God knows us. Does anybody know me? God knows you even better than you know yourself. It also should lead us to praise. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. The knowledge of God about us should just cause us to be like, what an awesome God you are. It's like what Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, after he's been reflecting on the knowledge of God, Paul just finally bursts out. He goes, oh, the depths of the wisdom of the riches, the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. We should just like explode in praise. Oh, wow, God, you know everything. Praise God for all that you know about us. And so it's a really comforting But it's also kind of disturbing, too, that God knows so much about us. You know, the good news is God knows everything you're thinking. The bad news is God knows everything you're thinking. And he knows. He knows the thoughts that I shouldn't be thinking and the the, 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 the things that are going on in my heart that are not glorifying to him. You know, he sees right through us. You know, the knowledge of God, it kind of reminds me of the the new uh, scanners they have at the airport. You know, they used to just walk through the metal detector, right? But now, you, if you guys have been in the airport with the new ones, they have them in Boston. They're like these full body scanners, the cylinders. And, and you walk into the body scanner without your shoes, your belt, you know, and you're like half disrobed anyway. So then you've got to stand there, and then you have to assume the position. <laughs> this is a really vulnerable position. And, you know, everyone's looking at you, and you're like, yeah, I'm cool. You know, yeah, it's just, uh, totally normal. You know, I'm so thankful, you know, security and all that. But I got to be honest, there's a little part of my brain that's just going, somewhere there's a room, someone's looking at me naked. <laughs> and it's not a good feeling, you know. And that's it. God sees us naked. And I don't mean our bodies. I mean our thoughts, our hearts. It's all naked before him. He sees all the junk that goes inside of my head and my heart and my motives and everything about me. And that makes us want to run. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And and so that leads us into the second section. So the first section is the all-encompassing knowledge of God, of how God knows us, which is both comforting and disturbing. And now David is, he's like, wow, God knows me. Oh no, God knows me. And so in verse 7, he, you have this sort of fleeing impulse, and it leads us to the second section, which is God's all-encompassing presence. Not only does God have an all-encompassing knowledge of you, he also is all-encompassing presence in your life. You can't get away from him. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You know, where can you hide from God? I don't know, any kids here like to play hide-and-seek? We play hide-and-seek in my house. I have a super sick, epic hiding place in my house that I've used. I don't want to say it because one of my kids is here, but I haven't, like, it's ridiculous, this hiding place. Nobody knows. It's the kind of hiding place where you hide there, then a half, or half an hour you hear people walking around the house going like, we give up! 
you know, and they're mad because they can't find you. Then you come out of your hiding place. You're like, like, you were outside. Like, no, I was inside. You just couldn't find me, right? But God was there in the hiding place. You can't get away from him. Verses 8 to 10, if I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Look again, more merisms. If I go to the heavens, or if I make my bed in the depths, the Hebrew word is sheol, the place of the dead. No, so to- the opposites expressing totality. But there's not only a vertical axis, there's also a horizontal axis. He says, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, what direction is the dawn? East. If I settle on the far side of the sea, if you're in the land of Israel, what direction is the sea? It's west. So, so he, he uses this sort of poetic language to portray the, this kind of axis of up and down and side to side, horizontal. Even if I go way to the edges of the earth, you're there. I, I can't escape you. God is everywhere. I mean, you can try to run from God. You can try to get on a boat and flee and get away from him, but it doesn't work. Just ask Jonah, you know? Cannot get away from God. When I was uh, a jun- uh, between my junior and senior year of high school, I went on a, a short-term mission trip to Taiwan. Actually, it was about two months. I went for two months to Taiwan to do some mission stuff. And my parents were kind of nervous about me going to Taiwan as a high school student for two months. You know, at the time, I was like, what's the big deal? Like, you know, now that I'm a parent, I'm like, I can't believe my parents let me go on a mission trip to Taiwan for two months. What, were they crazy? Um, but it was cool. What, uh, uh, my parents gave me, you know, they, they, they gave me, this was their psalm to me. They said, as you go, this is the scripture we're sending along with you, that God is with you even, even when you go there. In fact, this is the Bible they gave me on my 18th birthday, and my mom and dad wrote little verses in the front, and it says, Psalm 139, heart mom, heart dad. It's pretty cool. So this is kind of a special psalm for me, because even when I was across the sea, at the far side of the sea from the United States, literally halfway around the world, and they couldn't be there to take care of me. God was with me, and so they had comfort in that. Uh, my wife and I are leaning on that now as our daughter is at college. You know, she's beyond the reach of the helicopter parenting. <laughs> you, know, you, you know, you try to use, you know, devices and apps to try to keep in touch with them, but, you know, they're gone, God is there. Maybe you're missing somebody today. Maybe somebody is far away from you. God is with them. You can't get away from God. He's so, he's so all-encompassing in his presence. You can't even hide from him in the dark, verses 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like day for the day uh, for darkness is as light to you. You can't hide in the dark from God because God sees in the dark. He has like super night vision goggles or whatever. He, it gets all light to him. And that's encouraging too because sometimes we find ourselves in very dark, dark places. A couple Sundays ago, we looked at Psalm 42 and 43 and we talked about depression. Depression is a dark place. When you're in the depths of depression, you're just in the dark and you feel like nobody can see you. It feels like God isn't there, that God isn't close to you. And you wonder, is, is God anywhere near? And yeah, God is right there with you. Even in the dark, you can't hide from him. Or maybe you've, you've lost someone that you love. 
It's really lonely sometimes. You know, during the day, keep yourself busy. It's okay. But at night, when you're alone and it's dark, that's when the sadness just comes in like a flood. And you, you cry alone. No one hears you. But God is there in the darkness. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. He's not just way up in heaven like, oh yeah, I see you're down in that tough place. He's with us in it. God is so close, his all-encompassing presence. Not only is God with us when dark times befall us, God is with us when we're in a dark place because we chose to go there ourselves. Even when we walk in sin, sin is darkness. And we go to dark places. We go into the dark places of our addictions. We, we go into the dark places of unbelief. We go back to our worldly ways and our worldly habits. That We feel that pull and, and, and we give in to temptations to, to our old, you know, the old you before Jesus came into your life the B.C. version of you, the before Christ version, and, and, and all those old reactions and those old responses, and you're pulled back into the darkness, and sometimes you give in to temptation, and you just go back to that old junk. And it's so great to know that God goes with us. Even when we're totally rebelling against him in sin, he's right with us. And he's ready to embrace us when we turn around and say, oh, God, I've done it again. Are you there? And you turn around, he's like, right there. Yeah, I never left you. Even when you're in rebellion against me, I never left you. I'm here. The story of the gospel is the story of Jesus Christ, who's the light of the world, who came into the darkness. He came after us. He he came into this dark world. John tells us the light shined into the darkness as Jesus walked among us. He loved us that much. In fact, he loved us so much that he went to the cross and he took all of our our sin and our brokenness and our darkness and he bore those on the cross and the sun went dark for three hours as the judgment of God came. And so we have hope that even in the dark places, even when we dig a dark place for ourselves with our own sin and worldliness, and unbelief that God is there and that Jesus has come to bring lost people, people lost in the dark, back to God. If you'll just confess, I'm lost. That's the hardest part. We never want to ask for directions. We never want to say, I'm lost. But Jesus is there for anyone who will say, I am lost in sin. Oh Lord, save me. an all-encompassing knowledge, an all-encompassing presence. You think, wow, that's amazing. Oh, it gets even better. Number three, God has an all-encompassing power that made you. It's not just that God knows where you are and He's close. He made you. You are (laughs) hand-created. There is no assembly line. He made you. Look at verses 13 
and following. These are amazing verses. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. That's the womb. It's using poetic language here. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth. This wonderful imagery of this hidden creation inside of a mother's womb. These are perhaps some of the most clear, powerful, beautiful verses in the Bible letting us know that human life is a work of God from conception. From the first moment in the womb, God is at work designing and building. It's His handiwork. It's not like God made Adam and made Eve and then created the laws of reproduction. And then said, all right, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. I'll come back in you know, a couple centuries, see how it's going. And, and you know, we, we make babies through biological processes as if, as if all there is after that point, after God made human beings, is just you know, hormones and genetics and, and all that stuff. It's that with each, with each person who is in the womb, the hand of God is actively designing that person through hormones and genetics and all that stuff too, right? In other words, I think sometimes we we make a distinction between the laws of nature and the supernatural hand of God, but the Bible, you know, they go together. God works through the laws of nature. God works through that. I mean, God God is guiding the hormones and things. They're, They're both and. It's not either or. So that, so that God is, is designing you. You were made by God. You, the way you are, with all the ups and downs and the struggles and everything, was made by God. That's amazing. And so he says, verse 14, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And you know, the more science is advanced... The more medicine is advanced, I think the more we realize we really are fearfully and wonderfully made. Like David didn't know the half of it when he wrote this. The way that, that uh, scientists have been able to get into the womb and see the development of infants and, and to see the little heart beating so early and the little hands and fingers, and it's a miracle. You know, it's a miracle. And God is at work in that. And so I, th- I think it just needs to be said, you know, that, that every one of us, every person here should be passionately committed to the protection of human life at all stages. And that's not a political comment. I don't care if you are a Trump fan or if you have a Bernie Sanders sticker on your car. This is not political. I think one of the tragedies is that this has become a political issue. It's not political. This is just like human being issue. We should love all life. The old person who's struggling to stay alive and the new baby from birth, it is a unique human life from the moment of conception. That's a scientific fact. It's not a tissue. It's a creation of God. And so all of us here, whatever your politics are, doesn't matter. Let's all be, every human being should be pro-life. 
because God is at work, because it's human life. And so I just want to encourage us to really get that clear in our heads. You know, if there's any, you know, think of you teenagers here, any of you uh, 20-somethings here as people at your age are becoming sexually active, and uh, you may have a friend who gets pregnant, you know, unplanned, and they may come to you, and, and I just want to plead with you, don't, don't ignore that. God has put you in their life to, to plead with them for that life that's in the womb. You know, you use your influence with your friends. And, and if they're thinking about either an abortion or taking a morning after pill or whatever, you know, be a voice for life with your friends. Or, or if you, you know, if, if in a moment of disobedience you, you have premarital sex and you get pregnant or you get someone pregnant, even then in the shame and the embarrassment and the terror of that, I just pray that you will stand for life. Because even though the, the making of the child was done in an act of sin, you know, fornication, premarital sex is sin. God made sex for marriage. But even in that, let's make it clear, the baby is not sin. The baby is actually a grace blessing that's come out of sin. And so we need to protect that and be committed to that as a church. We need to be the kind of church that if one of our kids were to get pregnant, we wouldn't, you know shame and ostracize one another, but that we would stand for life and guard that one another in, in one another's lives as a congregation. And let me just also say, since we're on this topic, I just think it also needs to be said, then we'll move on, that if, if you're here and you've either had an abortion or you were the husband or, or, or rather the boyfriend and you pushed for that and both of those happen, you know, I just want to say to you, that abortion is not the unforgivable sin. It's not. Our God gave up His Son to forgive and to cleanse men and women who gave up their children. There is grace in God. But not only did He make us, verse 16 He planned our whole lives. Verse 16, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. There really is a plan for your life. And God really planned it because he made you and he can do whatever he wants. You're his. What an awesome thought. And so at that point, David just kind of breaks down verses 17 and 18. How precious are your thoughts, O God. He just erupts in praise. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I am awake, I'm still with you. What an awesome God. He has an all-encompassing knowledge of us, an all-encompassing presence. His power is all-encompassing. He made you. He designed you. And then you come to the fourth and final section, which is the reaction And uh, this is a little different. (laughs) Look at the fourth section. We shift gears dramatically. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Like, whoa, that's intense. We, We go from this like really sublime 
beautiful reflection of God and his loving care for us, and then whiplash into God, kill people, please. He's like, you know, kill the bloodthirsty people, and, you know, I hate them. Like, what? <laughs> How did he get there? You know, does someone else, like, butt in and write this last little bit? I, what's going on here? Just, well, two, two thoughts. One, one thought is that uh, this is poetic language, and so it's, emo- it's emotive, it's evocative, it's intense, it's sometimes hyperbolic, and so I think that's part of it. Remember, this is poetry, and so there's a lot of emotion that's being communicated here. But I think the other thing is that there is a kind of logic, because after spending the first three sections just getting his mind blown by how awesome God is, and his heart is filled up, and he says, the greatest thing in the universe is God. And then he looks at the, a world that totally rejects the greatest thing in the universe, that, that denies and misuses his name, and there's just something that rises up inside of David, and he says, God, would you just fix this? This is just not right. And sometimes we feel that, not that we should pray for specific people to die, <laughs> But, but that we just say, Lord, like, when are you going to set the world right? God, you're the greatest thing there is, and this world treats you like dirt. And there's something in our hearts as Christians that even as we love others and even as we share the gospel, that longs for a day when that won't be the case anymore, where the name of Jesus won't be a swear on sitcoms, but he'll be worshiped. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That should be the reaction to Jesus. And it isn't. And it's so wrong. And the psalmist David cries out, Oh God, fix it. Make it right. Bring justice. But then, ah, verse 23. You know, you start feeling that way. Oh God, fix this terrible sinful world. You know, and you're going around ranting, why won't God do something about this? And then you walk, and you walk by your, your bathroom mirror, and you go, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Me too. I also have unbelief and sin in my own heart. Ugh. And he realizes that the same unbelief and the same rejection of God that characterizes our world still, even in the heart of a Christian, still lurks. It's, it's still in there. And so he ends the psalm the way he begins it. He begins with, you've searched me, and he ends with the prayer. Search me. Dig more, God. Turn over some more rocks. Open up some more closets. Clean out some more junk that's hidden under the bed. Oh, God, there's still more in me you need to work on. And he prays, oh, Lord, I, I, I want to be closer to you. Know me more. Test me. Know my thoughts. See if there's anything that's offensive in me and lead me in the way everlasting, the way of eternal life, which is Christ. I don't know if you have ever memorized Bible verses. It's not really in vogue today, unfortunately, it seems. But if you've thought, have you ever thought like, ah, oh, someday I'd love to memorize some Bible verses, can I just say that verses 23 and 24 would be two great verses to memorize. And then, like, don't just memorize them and be like, oh, I memorized two verses. Then use them daily as part of your own prayer life. That's a great 
daily prayer. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And just know that as you pray that prayer, as you ask God to do the further scary searching work in your heart, that the God who's doing it is the God who knows you, who's close to you, who made you, and who sent his son to die for you. This is a God that we can trust to search us. We can trust him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we worship you this morning as your people here in this place. Father, we just pray that you would give us an awe and a wonder at your great all-encompassing love for us, Lord. I do pray, Lord, for anyone here who feels lost, who feels in the dark, who feels alone, who feels isolated, even in a big crowd like this, Lord, they feel unknown and unheard. God, I just pray that you would reveal your great love and care for them as well. Lord, I pray for any of us who are lost in sin, in unbelief. Maybe we've never, ever even put our faith in you. Lord Jesus, I pray that if we're in the dark, that we would turn back to you right now. Thank you that you call people out of darkness into the light. Lord, give us grace to walk in the light. And Lord, we pray that prayer. Search us, O God. Know our hearts. Search this church. Search me. Show us if there's anything that shouldn't be there, God. Give us hunger for holiness and a close walk with you, Lord. I I pray that we would treasure a close walk with you so much that it would just make us hate and fear sin because we wouldn't want anything to come between us. So lead us, God, we pray. And we thank you that you're with us, that our church is in your hands, that you are holding us fast. In Christ's name we pray, amen.